Welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify. And welcome to the Bush Bomb mini series. My name is Shuang. Welcome to the product development episode. Yeah, and I'm David Gaylord, co-founder of Bushbomb and Shopify's Merchant in Residence. So David, I do have to ask, um, you guys started this business five, six years ago at a time where we weren't talking about ingrown hairs or, you know, struggles with your bikini line a lot in public, at least. Um, so how did you guys even get the idea of investing into pubic oil and creating this business um, that covers skincare for everywhere? Yeah. So in the early days, we actually weren't talking about those things either. We were on the periphery thinking about them potentially, but the first product was actually called Bush Oil. Um, and it was mostly focused on scent um, and kind of just general moisturizing. Um, so it, it did take us a couple of years actually to find um, our, our niche and the markets we were going after. Um, but that was a, a learning process for quite a while, actually. And I think your co-founder, Tim Burns, actually has a pretty interesting discovery story of how the idea came to be. So tell us more about that. So Tim and his wife, Mel, were they were actually on their honeymoon. Um, so I won't go into too much detail, but uh, Tim ended up using a, a face oil um, down, down below the belt to freshen up after the beach. Um, so they, they kind of came back from their honeymoon and they, they told this story and they said, you know what? It's kind of an interesting moisturizer. There's like a little bit of scent in some some face oils. It's interesting, and obviously, like face quality skincare is what we cherish. So it's like, how do we bring that uh, to a part that maybe many of us have neglected? That sounds so funny and also very interesting. I want to know how they approached you and what made you say, you know what? That's actually a good business idea. I come from a marketing background, right? So I, I was working at Shopify fresh kind of out of the university with a, a degree in marketing. And both of them are more on the design and product development side. So they they had great branding. They understood what it took to kind of design logos and websites, whereas I had more of the, a little bit of experience in Facebook marketing, email marketing. So they thought maybe it would be a, a perfect connection between they want to develop the brand, the products, and then I get to kind of bring those products to the world. Um, and at the time, we just thought it was, hey, you know what, it's a really good way to learn. Like, let's, let's start an e-commerce store. Let's see what it's like. And uh, over the last six years, we've learned a lot of what you should do and a lot of what you shouldn't do. Um, which has been great. And I think that's such a defining moment for a lot of people, you know, you moving from just a funny story from your friend to actually a business partner. And a lot of people might have hesitation when they hear that. So I guess for you, like, what was that swish between just a funny story to business idea? Yeah, the the part Tim uh, and Mel, when we got into it, we thought, you know what, we're, we're going to do something. And worst case, we just do it for a year and we learn. We learn what it takes. We learn um, a few skills that, that work or don't work. So for us at the start, it was all about like learning. Um, and, and at times, like say you were investing in a business and say raising money or putting your own money in in, in large sums, that, that's where it does get for sure scary. Um, but for us, it was, it was all about starting out. And um, it's really, really easy for someone to make their own objections. So when you start out, I could have said, you know what, I don't want to go with a business partner because it complicates things. And then we might not have ever started Bushbomb. Um, we might not have started a business at all. Whereas 
by just saying, you know what, what's the first step? Let's do it. That that actually got us through many cases. And for us, the first step was let's just buy a domain. So we bought the domain and then we were a little bit more committed. And then every week we thought, okay, what do we, what's the one small thing we can do next to keep going? Um, so yeah, we, we quickly ignored any sort of challenges and just pushed through. Um, whereas, yeah, a lot of people get hung up in the, what do you call it? The, the issues that have never happened. Um, like what if our partnership falls apart? What if uh, the business goes sour between us? And then that stops them from ever starting. Whereas our positioning was, you know what, let's just start. And as these things come up, we'll, we'll deal with them and we'll figure out how to get past them. Mm-hmm. And you need that boost of optimism when you first start out. So it's very crucial. Yeah. And, and me as a human being, I'm very much an optimist um, to my own fault, I would say. So the, I was always, uh, even early days bush bomb, you almost need someone who is like, the opportunity is so big. The opportunity is massive. The industry, I was pulling data and stats to say how big it was. Um, and at the time, it, I don't think it was a very big market, but now it's like, it's grown. But that's, you kind of need someone to push you through and make you see like, oh, it could be a really big thing. Um, and that was my, definitely my role in the early days. So I want to know, you know, after that conversation, now you actually have to make the products and potentially get a few friends to test it out. So how did you guys approach that? So the the first thing we actually did was we did a lot of research. And most research, I would say, is we Googled. We Googled a lot in regards to regulations. So understanding what products are the most difficult to make and what, what are potentially easier and less risky. So uh, the name of the business is Bush Balm. And we quickly realized that making a balm or a cream um, takes a lot more chemistry and is quite, it's quite difficult. Um, you have to go through, find a chemist, work with them. Whereas if you are doing an oil, um, it's actually less risky um, and you can use much more natural ingredients and um, very simplified formulas. So when we started, we actually, we thought, okay, what is the least risky to do? Um, what is the most natural we could do? Um, and what can we buy in smaller quantities? And it just turns out like oils were, were, were products we could buy in small quantities. That is really difficult if you're trying to do a balm or a cream or, or something more, more complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially this product will be used for, you know, sensitive areas, definitely for sure. So um, and then moving from understanding the legalities and the safety and things like that, how did you move into uh, the packaging and also testing out the different formulas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we actually had uh, a group of friends come over and we said, okay, let's let's just try all of these options. So I don't know how many we had. We might have had nine different, say, formulas that we, we had uh, created. Um, and we had everyone just test them. And we actually did it where everyone tested the products, um, like how quickly did it absorb? And then they wrote their feedback on that side. And then we had them write the scent or aroma that they smelt in each one. And then that's actually originally how we came up with all the names. So the names kind of led into how we branded each product. Um, so we had Nude, which was our unscented. Um, we actually had one called Wilderness, which is more like cedarwood, eucalyptus scented. Um, and then we had uh, Sweet Escape, which was our more tangerine uh, scented option. So yeah, that, that session 
we learned a lot about what people had perceptions of the products. Um, and also we learned the words people use to describe, oh, like even just someone saying fast absorbing, that was really helpful for us. And we, we started to use that on the packaging, in our marketing. Um, it's often these little words that change your perspective of, of branding in particular. What a great like group of friends. And also it's such a cool thing to note that you just had access to a bunch of end users essentially. Yeah, it's uh, the one thing too, early on, I, for some reason I thought, oh, I don't wanna tell too many people cause they'll steal my idea. And I don't think anyone was stealing our idea in the early days. <laughs> so once I got over that hurdle, it was easy to say, hey, 10 people like, what do you think of this branding? Or what do you think of this product? I'll give you a free one. People were so excited. Um, so yeah, I don't know why people have that fear, but I, I certainly had it in the early days. Yeah. And I think this is a very important thing to talk about because especially in the ideation and product development stage, a lot of people are scared to share their ideas, but um, in effect, it actually helps you to access testing and access resources. So for yourself, what was the mental hurdle that you crossed when you're like, you know what, actually sharing my idea would be very beneficial? Yeah, I'm I'm actually not sure when the I really crossed it. Um, I think the thing that helped the most as I crossed over that that hurdle was especially on the marketing side because often when you're doing marketing and launching a product you tend to use your own bias so you say you know what I think people are going to resonate with this messaging um, whereas for us we we actually went to waxing salons they're in our target exact target and we asked them hey what do your clients need like what do they tend to buy um, what do they value um, and then we went back to them again and we said, hey, what about this branding, this product? And in the end, we got so much good feedback, um, especially considering we called the product bush oil at the start. And they said that doesn't resonate at all. Maybe pubic oil or soothing oil. Um, so we changed kind of our positioning entirely. Um, but yeah, it's just we going to a waxing salon. They easily could have started their own product, um, but they're running another business as well. So that... That was our greatest learning from it, but also like kind of scary to go in to talk to a stranger about about a new product potentially. And I think having those conversations with those salons um, not only helped you in your product development, but it also gives you like potential for partnership when you are ready for retail expansion or things of that sort. Definitely. And they 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 also understand that you're not ready yet. And generally people are pretty pretty happy to help. I think people do care and they want to see someone in entrepreneurship, like work out, they want to see it be a success. Um, so if you're not selling to them, you're just kind of getting feedback. People are generally really happy to give it. Awesome. So tell me about like where you guys were initially making the products and at what point were you ready to look for a production partner and move out and scale up in your production? Yeah, I would say this will be depending on the product and what you're making. One of the hardest things for most people to do um, so for us, we started, we would kind of get a facility and we would make it ourselves. So we'd buy in bulk the oils and we'd buy in bulk the bottles. And when I say buy in bulk, I don't mean large, large quantities. This was really small. I think our first uh, batch was 200 bottles. So that's not a large sum of, of bottles. Um, so for us in the early days, it was how do you keep costs down without having large quantities? Um, which is, I think, really difficult for most people because once you get over the quantity hurdle, you can work with all kinds of manufacturers. The world opens up to you. 
Whereas when you're small, the world is really shut off. If you say to a manufacturer, hey, we're trying to do 500, they might say, no, like there's no chance we're doing, we, we can't do that, our minimum's 5,000. So that stretch between 500 to 5,000 is really hard. Um, and a couple of ways we managed to do it and scale up was we bought uh, generic bottles. So when you buy generic bottles, um, you can do more with them. So we bought a thousand bottles that were very generic and standard, but we used a really nice branded sticker to make the branding pop and everything stand out. So that's one way you can do it with say stickers or tags, um, or you can say buy a sewing machine to do whatever you need. So that was one way we did it. And then the other way was making sure your product is one that you can make in a small batch. Um, so you can kind of grow it that way. Um, and then kind of the, the last piece of it is you could also go big. And if you can get with a manufacturer that'll do a larger quantity, the, the cost savings goes down a lot. So yeah, as we grew to a large manufacturer, we got so many more economies of scale. Um, it was much more efficient and we actually had access to new products to do. Um, but yeah, getting to that point becomes, it's a challenge that, uh, I've had many sleepless nights over kind of production because we were doing it in, in house in the early, early days. Mm-hmm. And it's like two challenges in tandem, right? You're trying to meet that next level. So you have to like make the products, but you're also needing to market and you have to actually sell the products in order to scale up to that next level. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, actually, if you're the marketing person, but also the, the person who's either shipping or making the product, the more you sell, the more work you have to do on manufacturing or shipping. So you realize like if you're successful in marketing, your your time goes completely to shipping, manufacturing. So those are the reasons we outsource like fulfillment. We quickly outsource and then manufacturing, we found great partners. Um, but yeah, that's, there's a stage where if you're doing everything and you do really well in the positioning marketing, you're the busiest person ever because you have to ship everything. It's, it's a, that part's a lot of work. So at what stage were you ready to look for a manufacturing partner? And what were the things you looked for when you were finding that ideal partner? So we we reached out to quite a few uh, cosmetic manufacturers um, when we were not ready, which actually was, was good um, because we built a, a, a slow relationship with them. And we met them, we interviewed them. They were kind of interviewing us as well. We understood, okay, what is your your baseline uh, minimum quantity that you would need? So on the cosmetic manufacturing side, those are all local. Um, so we could go meet them and talk to them, see their facility. I would highly recommend that. Um, and then the, the other piece is if you're looking for, say, boxes, bottles, or clothing, or w- whatever it is, um, reach out to other people maybe in the space. So they might be able to provide you with, hey, here's a good bottle manufacturer. And they will probably tell you, here's exactly the minimum quantity. So for us, we actually didn't know. So we spent a lot of time going to manufacturers and saying, here's our idea, here's what we need. And then they would say, well, the minimum quantity is 50,000 units. And we'd go, oh, right, right. So then we had to go back to the drawing board. Um, So knowing early on, what are the minimum quantities? So if the minimum quantity is 10,000 bottles, Um, then you can work backwards and say, our new goal is to get sales to be able to handle 10,000 units. Let's figure out what that looks like, how many sales a day, and then you can build this plan to get there. 
Um, so once we did that, it actually, it made the transition pretty seamless into a, a manufacturer um, who we had a good good relationship with. And then all of a sudden they take that burden off you and you can hopefully scale up much quicker because they have the, the capacity in their in their facility. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the initial uh, manufacturing and production partners you looked for were local production partners. Was that something, a requirement for you, or was it just easier to network within the city and also like understand and check out their facilities? So anyone who does cosmetic manufacturing, the facilities for us anyway are in Toronto. Toronto is kind of the closest place to manufacture um, cosmetics. And that was one thing, obviously, we were going to keep close close by with trusted partners and not go like overseas or anywhere else. It's just much easier. Whereas uh, stickers for bottles that we use, we, we source those entirely locally, um, mainly because if you're producing more and you need to like do more quickly, it was easier to get them quickly. Um, and then there were a few items that we used Alibaba for a small amount of time, but we, we did source our bottles in China in the early days and they were just kind of generic. We found them somewhere online through Alibaba. We found a manufacturer and then they shipped them to us. Um, and they, the shipping took forever. It was really slow. It was, it was really, um, it was tough at the time to figure out, but at that time, timelines weren't that important to us. What I would do is try to find as much local as possible. You can adapt more and change more. Um, and then once you're moving into economies of scale, there will be local manufacturers who, who can keep up and scale with you, which is what I would prefer. We've bought in a hundred thousand bottles um, and essentially, we've been recommended to, hey, here is one of the best bottle manufacturers in China. Um, here's who uses them. Here's why. And then we worked with them. But they're, getting with them, their minimums were a little bit higher than we were used to. Um, but yeah, in the early days, it's like, keep it local. And then as you scale out bigger and bigger, try to keep it local, but your kind of profit margins will be really important. Um, and then you'll kind of just expand naturally to whatever works. Because mm-hmm. um, your current bottles are really beautiful. Um, they give like that droplet look and definitely not generic. So um, at which point did you start to design that bottle? And what was that design process like? So it was uh, probably about two or three years ago now. Um, we felt like we found our product market fit is what I would call it. So our marketing was working really, really well. And our biggest challenge was inventory keeping up. Um, so that was the point where we actually, the, us as founders, we all invested um, more into the business. So we all put in, in capital to um, order. It actually, we ordered at the time, it was more than the year before's entire inventory that we sold. So we, we made this investment to buy it. And our goal with that, we said, if we want to get into a Sephora or an Alta of the world, what does our packaging need to look like? So that was our baseline. So we set that as a goal. And then we we went and we found manufacturers for kind of the quantity we wanted, which we were at the point getting close to that minimum edge. On my side of the business is I do kind of the marketing front. So the front end of the business. And then Tim and Mel, they run the design and packaging. So I was really lucky to, to have two kind of partners in the business who are able to design packaging beautifully. Um, Whereas if you don't have that access, um, you'd have to find someone, say, on Upwork or or figure out how to do it yourself in, say, Adobe or InDesign. Um, But yeah, luckily I I had Tim and Mel and they did an amazing job on the packaging, which is on 
iteration six now. And our, I think our iteration now we're really, really happy with. And I know that you guys have moved into different product categories. You know, there's scrubs and then there's also grooming tools. Um, how do you know, like, hey, this is a right time for us to expand and develop new products? It's quite difficult to, for, like, for certain say, hey, it's time to expand into this. It's time to do that. Um, because, like, you, you just frankly, in the early days, don't have the data to say, every time we launch a product, it brings... X more revenue to the business. It's really hard to say that. So for us, it was kind of guessing and not to say totally guessing. Um, we'd look at industry trends. And one thing I do a lot actually and still do is I use a, a tool, it's a Chrome extension called Keywords Everywhere. But you could use Google Search Console or you could use any sort of keyword tool. And I would search keywords around uh, skin concerns. So we launched a dark spot treatment um, the the summer of the pandemic. So we launched dark spot treatment um, for underarms and bikini line, and that launch was solely on we we help with razor burn and ingrown hairs. What's something similar in the similar area? And then we googled, we searched, and we noticed dark spot treatment that has a lot of search volume. That is a big concern people have. And then we said, okay, it's very similar to our product line now. Let's expand. And then we expanded to that. So if you're going to expand, it's figure out something that's close that you can go into. Um, and then recently we expanded our first ever cream called Tush Cream. And that was a, a product that we said intentionally, we want to expand our business for, from what people think of it as into something much bigger. So now we... We focus on any sort of skin concern you might have. So ingrown hairs, razor burn, dark spots, um, say stretch marks is a category we're moving into now. Um, uh, keratosis pilaris is this another big category we're moving into. So we're trying to grow from the pubic region or underarms to a more whole body category. And uh, to do so, we have to launch products that are obviously in the whole body category. So it's less about metrics and more about what we're trying to build the business into. Um, whereas if you're in the early days, it's often about metrics and something similar to your current catalog is probably the best choice. So you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, you were testing with a bunch of friends and they were the user group. And now that you're expanding, you know, into different creams and different um, areas of concern, are you still using the same testing process and user generated feedback or have your process for that aspect changed? So one thing that we do now, which I think is helpful um, for almost any business, if you get a say an email list of a certain size, we send a survey usually once or twice a year for feedback. So it's kind of our annual uh, survey. And we get a lot of good ideas out of that survey. Um, and then that will start the process for product development as well as some other research. But yeah, the, the process for testing now is quite a bit different. Um, we work with our chemist partners, and they will create samples for us and run all the quality and safety tests um, in the back end, but they will send uh, those to us. And often what it is, is you can give feedback on consistency, um, especially scent, um, how quickly it absorbs. Um, so now we have this ability to be really hyper-focused and we still do the same process of, we have a bunch of people that we get all these samples. They always come in very laboratory-looking bottles. And we say, hey, we have this shower cleanser. It is 
like safe to use. We, we know that from our, our chemist partners, but give us feedback on how it works and what you like about it. Here are all the things, the claims that it does and kind of what we expect out of it, the ingredients. We give all that to everyone. And then, yeah, they, they give us feedback usually in like a spreadsheet. They'll say, okay, I like this. I don't like this. Um, and yeah, it's, so far it's seemed to work really, really well. We do that cycle two to three times for each product we do. And for your chemist partner, how did you go about finding the right one for you? So it depends on, uh, I guess, what, what you're trying to build. So for us, our chemist partner is connected to our cosmetic manufacturer. And then we have another chemist partner that's connected to another cosmetic manufacturer. And we have another in a different category. So depending on the product we're developing, we personally like to keep it with the cosmetic manufacturer just because it streamlines the process and they know timelines, they work together. It's really, it's simplified. Um, whereas other people, what you can do is you can find a chemist on Upwork or another different platform and they'll help you make the product. But then you also have to find that uh, cosmetic manufacturer. Whereas for us, the price of the chemistry is often built into the uh, manufacturing side. And is it correct to assume that some of these chemists are actually introduced or they're actually just um, working with your production and manufacturing partners? So essentially the cosmetic manufacturers, a lot of them will have 20 chemists on staff and then they'll have hundreds of people in the manufacturing side, the warehouse, the facilities. Um, so they'll work every day on either improving formulas or they do so much testing. So stability testing to make sure it, like how long it lasts and can it withhold certain conditions. Um, so all these cosmetic manufacturers generally have that side. Um, whereas, yeah, we've, we've never really worked with a chemist uh, individually, um, but I know many, many brands do do that. It's just, uh, it's a totally different process. Yeah. So we talked about using web searches and also looking at social and seeing the common skin concerns are. Has there been any data integration that also helped with your product development? Huh. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. I guess one thing that we do do is industry trends um, is something we look at quite a bit. So we use something called Mintel. Um, and it's a, an old tool that I've had access to through my old university. And what it does is it it says, okay, here's some upcoming trends in this category or in this, and they'll give kind of trending products or trending ingredient lists. So we we subscribe to Mintel to to see kind of what's up and coming. Um, whereas it, it's not concrete data to say, hey, you should do this or that. It's but you you do get an interpretation of, hey, the world seems to be going in this direction. Um, and then you can say, okay, we're going to try to make something that hits on that that uh, attribute um, in our own kind of spin on it. So, yeah, no, on the product development, not really much data behind uh, like what we should do. Um, obviously, tons of data on costs and manufacturing ingredients, but not as much on. It's really hard to say like this will be a success. Because you just kind of don't know. What about looking at your own customer data and kind of using that um, and approaching bundling or discounting and seeing if um, those strategies will help um, raise your cart value and things like that? So we, we do do a, a lot of bundling. And for us, a good example of how we've expanded the line, which is, is pretty data informed, I suppose, is we've looked at our top selling products forever. And we know we have a dark spot treatment that's really successful. And what we've done is we've added new products to that, uh, we call it a routine. 
So for us, it's less about a bundle or a kit. It's more about a routine. So if you're combating dark spots or hyperpigmentation, we had one product and then we expanded the line to have a second product. So that, that becomes a routine. And then we've added another product. So then you have this full package routine um, that you can use like every single day. So that that's an easy way to be data informed about how having something be a pretty good success. Whereas if you try to do a new product entirely, it's it's a lot riskier, right? So we've we've done that quite a bit uh, with our um, current line. We've expanded the most successful categories, and then as far as data, one thing we do do, which I'm not sure is kind of the right way to do it, but we tend to write a lot of blogs on skin concerns, and they they might not even be skin concerns we we tackle right now. What when we write these blogs, it's interesting to see over like a year period, we'll get traffic for them. Um, and if something's getting traffic, we kind of think, okay, let's dig more into that. So it's like the starting point of, okay, let's dig into that. Um, or on our website, we have a little category called skin concern, shop by. So for that, we'll actually add a skin concern. And um, if we don't have a product, we might put like a form, a sign up form. Hey, we don't have any products in this category, but we're launching we're thinking about launching. Let us know if you have feedback. So that's one way we've we've added and, and gotten feedback. I love content marketing, definitely. So it's cool to see that you're leveraging content to source for you know product ideas and also feedback. So it's very cool to hear that. And I wanted to know about expanding into tools and grooming tools. Has the process of research and developing for that uh, been different or brought you just you know new challenges? Yeah, for for that process, um, you get more into uh, what I would call molds. So if you're doing hard goods, um, say we, we have a, a trimmer, you get more into the basic technology exists that most trimmers are. So for us, it was, okay, let's find the best technology that exists for a trimmer. Okay, we can find that. We found the manufacturer. The next process is, okay, what do we do for design? And does the mold different? Does it grip differently? Is it smaller? Is it bigger? How do we make that work? Um, so yeah, hard goods actually for us has been an excellent uh, adaption. We've, we've grown into it and it's it's been really successful for us with our trimmer. And the process of making it is, it's very complicated as far as finding the technology. You have to find the right manufacturer who's obviously an expert in the space. But manufacturing, they make it all it's all assembled in the same spot. They actually box everything for us. So it becomes one of our easiest products to manufacture. Um, it costs you a lot more because there's technology built into it, but manufacturing it is very streamlined. You get everything done at one place and then it ships to our warehouse. Whereas cosmetics, um, bottles come from one place, boxes come from another place. You have to send it to your manufacturer. It gets assembled and created, and then they have to send it back to your warehouse. So hard goods or clothing, for instance, the process of manufacturing is really, really simple. Whereas uh, obviously like filling a liquid um, gets much more complicated because it's generally not a one-stop shop. It's, it's many different pieces. Uh, even our, imagine our lids come from a different manufacturer than our bottles. All of a sudden you have this third, there's another element added in, which complicates it just one more time. 
Yeah, it's crazy to think that there's so many moving pieces with skincare and with, you know, tools, it's actually a more streamlined process. I noticed that you guys are actually selling at Indigo, which is a large nationally distributed Canadian retailer, mainly with books, but they're expanding into lifestyle and homes. So getting that big contract, has that put pressures on your production? And have you altered your production at all to meet um, their ordering demands? So with Indigo, we've actually, we've just launched. So it's really, really new. Um, but the, the thing that happens um, with these retailers, which Indigo actually is really interesting. And um, the way they're doing it is, I think, unique and kind of, and really smart, actually. So what Indigo has done is they have this online business and they add to it and they're, they're doing a great job of adding more wellness and especially sexual wellness. And they're trying to expand it. And what they've done is, if you get online and you're success, they're like, okay, it's time to go to the big leagues and get you in store. But what it does for the manufacturer, so for us, now we're learning what it takes to get into these things. So there's different packaging requirements. Um, you have to kind of polybag things. You have to have it packaged a certain way. So for us, it's been a good learning curve to grow into um, more of these mass retailers. Um, and Direct-to-consumer, for instance, is really easy. You, you're lucky. You could have a fulfillment provider and every order ships within a couple hours. You just package it yourself. Uh, whereas when you're going into retailers, you have to have their like their barcode in a certain spot. You've got to package it a certain way. You have to ship it in a certain way. So it, it's complicated, the business. And yeah, we've certainly had to change from how we fulfill and our fulfill, fulfillment partners um, we really trust. And if you don't have a fulfillment partner that you can trust or is a fulfillment partner who does this mass retail side, um, it's going to be really hard. So we, we've gone through that and seen it. And the more you kind of lock down that process, the easier it becomes. But yeah, it's, it's complicated to move into any new channel, especially retail. Is a, it's a different world than direct-to-consumer. So speaking of that Indigo partnership, did you guys have to pitch them at all? And what was the process of um, getting that order? We actually took this approach early on where we said, let's go direct to consumer really big and really quick. So we grew a lot. We focused on it entirely. Um, so our, our, say, Instagram, we started to get more press. We were on Dragon's Den. So that increased our kind of awareness in the market. And we actually had Indigo and Urban Outfitters reach out to us directly. So they asked us, hey, would you be interested? Like, let's chat. This is kind of what it would look like if you want to start online, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, right now, those were two that they reached out to us. And convincing someone who reached out to you is much easier. Um, yeah, so I don't actually have much to say on the the other side of the fence. Whereas right now, we are really trying. There's a couple of retailers we're keen on. And we're doing the like reach out, the sales, trying to connect with the right buyer. Um, and it's obviously much more difficult. So our, our strategy is, I think it could work for many DC brands, is grow to a size where any retailer can't ignore you on direct-to-consumer channels. Because if you're popular and they see you're popular, they want you in store. Um, so that's been our strategy. And, and hopefully it, it pans out in the next kind of year or two. We, we grow into many other other big, big retailers. Well, thank you so much, David. I feel like I've covered so many different areas of product development. But is there some tips or advice you would give to new entrepreneurs um, when they approach or think about product development? 
Yeah, there's a few uh, very specific learning curves that we've had. Um, one is think about the shipping cost as well. And I guess you could say shipping cost and the environment. That's one. And the lesson under that is say you have rigid boxes, um, you have to ship those, say, from China or wherever you're shipping them. They will fill up a lot of pallets and skids with just air, right? So if you have boxes that fold, they will fold down nicely and be really, really small and shipping is much easier. And also that's good for the environment. Like it's just much better all around and rigid boxes. Often you don't, you can't recycle many of them. They're covered in a coating. So you got to think about all of these little things that are good for you cost wise for shipping, um, cost wise with storage, but also for the environment. A lot of these things are, are super important. Um, the second one that we learned kind of the hard way is, the supply chain in general isn't perfect. Like it'll never be perfect. So if you're trying to live in a world where it's perfect, you're going to have issues all the time. So for us, what this means is our one of our lowest cost components are our bottles and boxes. So instead of us trying to order exactly what we need, we order them in mass. We order way more than we need at the time and we warehouse them. And then when our manufacturer needs to fill them, we send them exactly what we need to send them and we store the rest. So during COVID and during supply chain disruptions, we were actually really, really good. And we, we only sold out of a few products a few times. But if you can kind of not do just in time everything in the early days as you're growing really quickly, that's probably better. Otherwise, you're just going to constantly sell out. Um, whereas now we're getting bigger and we can control more of these things. Um, we can do more just in time. Um, but yeah, in the early days, that just in time idea sounds amazing, but is really, really hard to hard to manage without obviously selling out. Amazing. Thank you so much for the product development insights. And yeah, we're looking forward to the next episode. We're going to talk about all things marketing. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks for having me.